Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love it because it is inspired by you, breathed out, God-breathed. And it's profitable to us. It's profitable for the content of our teaching. It's profitable for us to learn of your truths. It's profitable for us because it corrects our walk and corrects our belief. And it's profitable because it trains us to live the righteous lives that you desire. We pray that your word would do all of those things in our lives this day. We thank you, as always, for the salvation that you have provided through putting our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work in Calvary. Thank you for him. Thank you that he willingly took our place, the innocent for the guilty, the sinless for the sinful. And thank you that we can be in your family. We can be in relationship with you. We can pass from death to life. We can have eternal life simply by putting our trust in him. And Lord, it's my fervent desire that each person here has made that decision in their lives. And they have trusted your son, not themselves, not religion, not religious ritual, but your son Jesus. If there are those who haven't, I pray that that would be something they would not put off another minute. Lord, thank you for this momentous chapter of Scripture. Help us to understand it and apply it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leroy Imes, the author of The Lost Art of Discipleship, wrote these words. Just before his ascension into heaven, our Lord said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not just the missionary, not just the pastor, but all of us, a kingdom of priests who are to spread the knowledge of God far and wide. He concludes, Christian, this is the Lord's desire. His people, all of us, are to be witnesses and take the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. What we have here in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is a momentous occasion as as what Jesus promised to the disciples comes to pass And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, to baptize them, to fill them, to gift them. One writer said, Acts is a pivotal pivotal book of transitions from the Gospels to the Epistles, from Judaism to Christianity, from law to grace, from Jews alone to Jews and Gentiles together, from kingdom to church. Acts is a history of extraordinary events. And in Acts chapter one verses, chapter two, verses one to 13, we have three of these extraordinary events that we're going to look at this morning. Another writer said, "The disciples are transformed and filled with courage 
to proclaim the brand new message of the resurrected Savior. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would baptize them, that is, form them into the body of Christ, form them into the church. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would provide them with power to witness to the truth about Him. And that's what we see going on in Acts chapter 2. Now, we studied the first four verses last week when the day of Pentecost came. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them, and here's where we start this morning, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God's promises being fulfilled to them. The Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit is empowering them. And they are witnessing to the truths of the Gospel. Three things occurred in verse 4. Three things occurred in verse 4. First of all, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. The second thing that occurred is they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, that isn't obvious there, and I'll explain to you uh, why that is. How do we know that the baptism of the Spirit happened on the day of Pentecost in verse 4. Well, remember, it was not mentioned here in verse 4, but it was anticipated in chapter 1 and verse 5. In chapter 1 and verse 5, where Jesus said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, it doesn't have to say they were baptized in the Spirit in chapter 2 and verse 4 because it was anticipated by Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 5. And secondly, in chapter 11, verses 15 and 16 of the book of Acts, Paul confirms that what happened on the day of Pentecost was not only the filling of the Spirit, but also the baptism of the Spirit. The third momentous thing that happened is that of speaking in tongues that of speaking in tongues, the gifting of the Holy Spirit. So I want to I look at each of these uh, this morning. I want to look briefly at the truths about the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem is there's way more truth than we have time for this morning. Uh, there is, uh, we could, and actually I did, a sermon series on the Holy Spirit back in 2006, so let me ask, recommend something to you. If you'd like to know more about all of these ministries of the Spirit, if you'd like to know more about the Holy Spirit, His personhood, His ministry, then go to www.delriobiblechurch.com and in the sermon uh, search box, type the words, Understanding the Spirit understanding the Spirit. Uh, what will happen is it'll come up. There are seven parts to the series, and it's an entire series on the person 
and work of the Holy Spirit. So we're only going to hit highlights today. We're only going to hit highlights. We're not going to be able to go deeply into this today. Um, in fact, there's not even enough time to do the highlights we want to do. But if you want to know more about it, uh, go to the website, type in Understanding the Spirit uh, 20, and you'll see it'll come up. It's 2006, a uh, series of seven messages. First, let me give you a little background about the Holy Spirit. And whenever I think of the Holy Spirit, I think of one of my favorite and most unique profs in college, uh, Professor Osborne. Uh, do you have a favorite prof from college? Somebody you loved or hated, right? It's got to be one or the other. You either loved them or hated them. Uh, I love Dr. Uh, not Dr., but uh, Professor Osborne. Uh, he, uh, he was a unique character. He always dressed very navily. I mean, he, he wore these wonderful sport coats, and, and uh, uh, he had this mustache, and he had just a look about him. But I'll never forget the first day in class. And by the way, it's a long time ago. So why I remember this is, <laughs> is uh, interesting, but I remember very distinctly the first day in class, he was teaching a course on the Holy Spirit. And the very first thing he did, up at the podium, introducing himself, he takes his leg, hikes it up like this, and I can't even reach here, but he was able to reach here and he puts his foot up and he's telling us something about something wrong with his foot. I don't know what that had to do with the Holy Spirit. All I remember is my mind's eye seeing him go like that and stick his leg up there. But that wasn't the only unique thing about him. He proceeded to tell us, if you ever come to my house on Sunday afternoon, he was not only a professor, he was also a pastor of a church said, if you ever come to my house on a Sunday afternoon, you'll find me in my bathrobe and pajamas. Really? <laughs> uh, kind of uh, interesting character. He was just letting us know that he was going to take his Sunday afternoon nap. I don't know what I would do without the Sunday afternoon nap. But uh, so, uh, thirdly, he told us, this is all just by way of introduction. He told us, don't ever, ever, ever try to serve me gravy. What? He said, yeah, gravy is nothing. We're not having gravy today, right? No gravy. Okay, so he told us that gravy is nothing but congealed blood. Ooh, yeah, I know. I, I, I think that's terrible. Uh, but uh, the thing that's pertinent to our study this morning is this. He was also telling us about a time when he was a young man and uh, he had been studying the truths of the Bible and the truths of the Holy Spirit, and he went to a tent meeting. And uh, he sat at the very back. Uh, you guys know what a tent meeting is, right? You know what I'm talking about? They, these itinerant preachers that go around, set up tents, and have meetings. Well, he went to a tent meeting, and he sat on the very back row at the back of the tent, and the preacher is just up front and just gesticulating and, and moving about and saying, get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. By it, he meant the Holy Spirit. And Professor Osborne, who wasn't a professor yet, couldn't take it any longer and yelled out from the back of the tent, 
The Holy Spirit is a He, not an it. And then he ran. <laughs> I've, never, I've never forgotten those stories from uh, Professor Osborne. So let's start there. The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an influence or a power, but the Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is identified as God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. The Holy Spirit is identified as God, the third person of the Godhead, in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Well, the Holy Spirit is real. He's not imaginary. We can't see Him, but we can't see the wind either, and we know the wind is real. He's, as one writer said, real and active. Uh, we studied a couple weeks ago about the Spirit's involvement in creation. He's involved in the revelation and inspiration of Scripture. Uh, he had a ministry in the Old Testament of selectively indwelling people for a time for a ministry. That's different from today when He indwells us permanently in the church age. Well, the Holy Spirit has personal characteristics. That is, He has intellect, emotion, and will. Those are the characteristics of personhood. So the Holy Spirit is a person, not an it, not a force, not an influence, not a power. The Holy Spirit does personal acts. For instance, Romans 8.26 says that He prays. He prays. The Holy Spirit is identified by personal pronouns. Though the word, uh, personal masculine pronouns, though the word pneuma, which is translated spirit, is a neuter noun, whenever a pronoun is used, a masculine pronoun is used of the Holy Spirit. That is bad grammar, but good theology. It's bad grammar, but it's good theology. The Holy Spirit is identified by personal pronouns, not neuter pronouns. Uh, the Holy Spirit has personal relationships, uh, especially within the Godhead. The Holy Spirit has personal reactions uh, subscribed to Him. He can be, for instance, He can be lied to. So that's, that's a little bit of background about the Holy Spirit. Well, three things occurred on the day of Pentecost. Three momentous things. Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit filling the disciples. The Holy Spirit filling the disciples. The filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. We said this a couple of weeks ago. I'm just going to hit the highlights here. The filling of the Holy Spirit is talked about in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. And you can write that down for your study, but in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, we read this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be under the control of the Spirit, under the domination of the Spirit. Speak, and when you do, certain things will happen. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart. In other words, when a person's dominated by the Holy Spirit under the control of the Holy Spirit, their speech will be affected. Verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father 
for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, when a person's under the control of the Holy Spirit, they live a thankful life. They live a thankful life. So not only is there, are their words affected, but their thankfulness is affected. And then thirdly, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The third thing is that it gives right relationships. When the Holy Spirit is in control of your life and my life, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, dominated by the Holy Spirit, He will arrange relationships in a right way. He will arrange relationships in the right way. Now, what are the prerequisites to being filled? By the way, it's a command. It's a command. Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. So it's not something we can just laugh off or something say that's something optional or something not important. It is very important. Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. What are the prerequisites? Well, many have come up with different prerequisites. I've kind of summarized them here for you. Uh, first of all, we must deal with sin in our lives. If we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we have to deal with sin in our lives. Uh, that's, a, that's a prerequisite. We can't be under the control of the flesh, under the control of the sinful nature, and expect that the Holy Spirit's going to control us. It just doesn't happen that way. James said that the Holy Spirit jealously guards us. He jealously longs for us. That is, the Holy Spirit's not going to take second place in your life or my life. The Holy Spirit's not going to take second place in your life or in my life. So we have to deal with sin because if we are living under the control of the sin nature, under the control of what the Bible calls the flesh, then we aren't living under the control of the Spirit. So a prerequisite is to deal with sin. A second prerequisite is that we must acknowledge God's right to our lives. We must acknowledge God's right to our lives. If we're not acknowledging that God has a right over my life and right over your life, then how can we expect that He is going to control, that the Spirit will control us, or the Spirit will dominate our lives, or lead our lives, or as in the case of Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit will give us freedom to share our faith effectively with those around us. So we have to not only deal with sin in our lives, we have to acknowledge God's right to our lives. Thirdly, we have to live a life of dependence on the Holy Spirit. We have to live a life of dependence on the Holy Spirit. Now when we do that, certain results will happen in our lives. Certain results will happen in our lives. We will be Christ-like. We will be Christ-like. How do we know that? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And when you study that passage, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, when you study that passage and you study the fruit of the Spirit, you find that the fruit of the Spirit is the characteristics of the life of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, all of those things. It's a picture of the character of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the character of Jesus Christ. So when you and I are under the, the control of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce in us Christ-like character. 
Ephesians 5, the passage I read just a moment ago, tells us that another result of being under the control of the Spirit is acceptable worship and praise in our lives. Another that Paul talks about in Ephesians is the fruit of the Spirit is right relationships in marriage, in the home, on the job, in the church. Those are some of the things. So, the filling of the Spirit as one writer said, it has to do with power, has to do with empowerment, has to do with enablement for service. Another writer says it enables us to serve and to grow, enables us to serve and to grow. It is a repeated experience. That is, we can be filled many times. Whenever we yield to the Spirit of God, He will control us. He will fill us. So we can be filled many times it's not a once and done deal it occurs at the moment of the salvation but it's a repeated experience uh, there are there are numerous passages and acts which passages and acts which show us that interestingly enough there are two other passages uh, in the book of acts acts chapter 4 verses 8 and 31 acts chapter 13 and verse 9 as with acts 2 that connects the filling of the Spirit with speaking. Not speaking in tongues, but just with speaking. There are many times it says in the book of Acts that the apostles were filled and they spoke. The only place we, uh, only play one of, I think, three times in the book of Acts where you see tongues, the this, this speaking in tongues connected at all with their with their filling is, uh, uh, we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, just three times. But in other places, it says they, filled, they were filled and they spoke. That is, they spoke in their own language. They spoke in witness to Jesus Christ. The filling of the Spirit is connected, one writer said, with a bold, effective proclamation of the Gospel. The reason for the filling of the Spirit, another said, is the bold, clear, earnest proclamation of the mighty works of God. It's interesting to note that the disciples were more often filled with the Spirit and spoke in their own language then they were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. Tongues is secondary in this passage, and yet it overtakes the passage. It overtakes the passage. Tongues is secondary. We'll, we'll look at that, and we'll answer the question this morning. <laughs> Where, how, did, did we get a faster clock? It looks like we got a faster clock. It's really going. Uh, <laughs> We're going to try to answer the question this morning, should I seek to speak in tongues? And uh, we'll, we'll, we've, we've got a lot to get to, so let's get to that. So, the apostles were more often filled and spoke in their own language than they were filled and spoke in tongues. All right? Now, the second thing that happened was the baptism of the Spirit. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. It occurs once in every believer at the moment of salvation. It is not a repeated act. It occurs once. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 
is the, the key passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for, by one, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. So it occurs once at the moment of salvation for each believer. Thus we don't need to pray for the gift of the Spirit, as one writer said, or for a greater baptism. We are automatically, the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are automatically baptized by the Spirit. And according to the definition of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that means that the Spirit identifies us with the church, the body of Christ. The Spirit puts us into the church, the body of Christ. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. As I said a couple weeks ago, the baptism of the Spirit is unrelated to spiritual maturity or spirituality. There are those who wrongly tell us that you have to reach a certain level of spirituality uh, or a certain level of spiritual maturity, and then you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then you'll speak in tongues. That is not biblically true. It's not biblically true. How do we know that? Well, Paul just told us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that all of the Corinthians were baptized. And yet all throughout the book, he tells us how carnal, how fleshly, how worldly the Corinthian church is. And yet he says they're all baptized by the Spirit. So it's unrelated to spiritual maturity or spirituality. Every Corinthian was baptized by the Spirit, and yet they were carnal. By the way, there's only one Spirit baptism. There aren't many Spirit baptisms. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. One hope, one baptism. One baptism. One writer described it this way. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to join people of diverse racial and social backgrounds into one body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his church. The third momentous thing that happened, we have the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. The third thing is speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues. Now, to get a, to get a picture of what that looked like, let's read from verses 5 to 13. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Underline the word language. Tongues is not some kind of ecstatic utterance. It is what? Language. Language. And there aren't two kinds of tongues, one in Corinthians and one in Acts. They are all the same. They are all the same. Tongues is not some kind of ecstatic prayer language. It is language. Known languages that people speak in the world. Verse 7, utterly amazed, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then it goes on to mention the language groups that were present on the day of Pentecost. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, 
residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Now, all of the nations that are mentioned in that passage, they are a combination of two groups. They are a combination of the nations to which Israel was dispersed. The nations to which Israel was dispersed when they were uh, taken over by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., that's all of the nations mentioned to the east, to the east of Israel, to the east of Israel. The other nations mentioned here are nations that are sur surround the Mediterranean Sea, Med nations that surround the Mediterranean Sea. That's where all of these Jews came from. Why did they come? Why were they there in Jerusalem? Now, please tell me you remember that from last week. The Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, they were there. All Jews, all Jewish men had to come for the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three feasts that they had to come for. That's why they were all there. That's why all these language groups were there. So what were these tongues? They're described by various writers as a real language, a spoken or livid language not previously learned by the speaker. In every case, they are language. Now, there's two words used here that are translated tongues or language. The first is glossa, glossa. That's where we get the term glossolalia, which is speaking in tongues. Glossa, it is used in two different ways. Glossa is used in two different ways. It's used of the structure of the tongue itself, and it's used of the language that the tongue produces. It's used in the scripture of the, the uh, structure of the tongue itself, as well as the language that the tongue enables or produces. We find glossa in chapter four, uh, excuse me, chapter two, verse four and verse eleven. Now, as one of the scholars said, there is no indication that glossa ever has the sense of ecstatic utterances or unintelligible utterances. There's no sense ever that glossa has that meaning, ecstatic utterance or unintelligible utterance. It's never used that way. The second word we find in this passage is found in verses 6 and 8 where it's translated in the NIV by the word language, by the word language, verse 6 and verse 8. That's the word dialectos. That's the word dialectos, and we get our word what? Dialect, dialect. It's a, it's a language of a nation or region. So what were tongues in this passage? They were obviously languages not some kind of Holy Spirit language, not some kind of ecstatic, unintelligible language, but they were known languages, known to the speakers, to the hearers who were there. By the way, this was a miracle with the ability, the miracle was the ability to speak in an unknown language, unknown to the speaker, 
it's not a miracle of hearing. It's not a miracle of hearing on the part of the hearers. It's a miracle of speaking on the part of the, uh, the ability to speak an unknown language. So that's, that's what we see here in, in this uh, idea of tongues. Um, I want to spend just a few moments, and I really don't have a few moments. Uh, there's so much that... Uh, well, I have just a few moments. There's so much that we want to look at, but let me kind of, kind of cut it short a little bit. And uh, I want to ask the question, should we seek to speak in tongues? Should we today seek to speak in tongues? Well, uh, let me recommend another book to you. By the way, if you ever get the books I recommend to you, you will have a classic library because all these books are old. They're 30 or 40 years old. They're still available today in used form, but they will enrich your library if you get them. There's one called Balancing the Christian Life. Balancing the Christian Life by Charles Ryrie. He deals with issues such as uh, legalism uh, and other practical issues in the Christian life. One of the chapters is on speaking in tongues, and it's entitled, Should I Seek to Speak in Tongues? Should I Seek to Speak in Tongues? And he had five reasons why we should not seek to speak in tongues. And let me share those with you really quickly. Number one, you can be baptized by the Spirit and not speak in tongues. You can be baptized by the Spirit and not speak in tongues. You see, our charismatic brothers and sisters, and they are brothers and sisters, I'm not questioning any of their salvation, not at all. There are many admirable qualities about our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just questioning their misreading of the Scripture and, and the turmoil it causes. They say that speaking in tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. If you've been baptized by the Spirit, and usually that means uh, uh, something that happened after salvation, some crisis experience in your life, some time in your life when you really get serious about God and you reach a new level of spirituality, uh, you get the baptism of the Spirit, and the evidence of that is speaking in tongues. Well, we just saw that that's not the scriptural model. We just saw that. But what about this idea that baptism of the Spirit is connected to speaking in tongues? That those who are baptized by the Spirit speak in tongues as an evidence. Well, you can write this down. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I read it a while ago. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. All of the Corinthians were baptized by the Spirit. All of the Corinthians, every one of them. So if the theology of the Charismatics and the Pentecostals is right, then all of them would have had to speak in tongues. But I want you to look at verses 
27 and following in 1 Corinthians 12, or at least write it down, where Paul goes through a list of spiritual gifts, gifts that the Spirit gives. Now he goes through this list, he does it in descending order, the most important first, the least important last, the very last one, the, most, the least important gift, the very last one in his list is tongues. But then he asks several questions. Do all have gifts, or excuse me, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? Now, in Greek, there's a particular way that you write a question that leads to a no or a yes answer. In other words, it's not up to question what Paul was expecting the answer to be. He used a Greek construction, a Greek form that calls for a negative answer. In other words, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. No. So all the Corinthians were baptized, but not all the Corinthians spoke in tongues. So you can be baptized by the Spirit in the Spirit and not speak in tongues. Should I seek to speak in tongues? The second reason we shouldn't that Ryrie lists is that the distributions of distribution rather of spiritual gifts is limited in various ways. Now this is a little more a, a little harder, but let me take a minute to try to explain this. Spiritual gifts, the distribution of spiritual gifts is limited. By the way, there are only four places in Scripture where spiritual gifts are mentioned. Four places. If you were at the welcome lunch last week, you heard about this. There were only four places. We just read one, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The second is Romans 12. The third is Ephesians 4. And the last is 1 Peter 5, 4. Excuse me, 1 Peter 4. It's the only four places in all of Scripture that any spiritual gifts are mentioned. And in none of the list except for 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is charismatic gifts mentioned, what we call sign gifts. They aren't even mentioned there. Apparently they were not distributed or not there in Rome or in Ephesus or in the, the, the uh, churches of the diaspora, the dispersal. Apparently they were not there. Well, wait a second. Every place, every generation, everybody has to have all the gifts all the time. Yet Romans, Ephesians, 1 Peter says nothing about those things, those gifts. Apparently there was no need to say anything because they weren't present there. Ryrie said this, In His grace God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. That, by the way, is not Ryrie. That is Paul in Romans 12. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift 
is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. So you can be baptized by the Spirit and not speak in tongues. The distribution of spiritual gifts is limited in various ways. Number three, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says this, where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Or as the New American Standard in King James said, translates it, where there are tongues, they shall what? Cease. They shall cease. Now, there's a whole argument here I have no time to explain to you because it deals with grammar and syntax of Greek. And it's a little bit complicated, but the translation there where there are tongues, they shall cease. That is a translation, uh, the verb cease is a middle verb in Greek. Now, Greek has an active verb, a passive verb, and a middle verb. The middle verb is a lot like our reflexive pronoun in English. The way it lays out is this. Tongues shall simply fade away of themselves. Tongues shall simply fade away of themselves. Now, prophecy and knowledge, they'll both cease in that same passage, but they are passive verbs. They are passive verbs, which means that something will happen that cause them to stop. But Paul changes verbs in midstream, so to speak, he changes verbs and makes it a middle voice verb. Tongues will fade out. Guess what happened? They faded out. By the time the early church was in the history books, tongues was also in the history books. Tongues was also in the history books. They faded out, just as Paul said they would. In fact, of the passages I gave you a moment ago, 1 Corinthians, if you look at them chronologically, 1 Corinthians is the first one, Romans is the second, Ephesians is the third, 1 Peter is the fourth, and chronologically they are later and later and later, and the later you get, there's no mention of sign gifts or charismatic gifts at all. 1 Corinthians is the only one. It was the gift of tongues and the sign gifts were fading away even, even as the New Testament was being written. Even as the New Testament was being written. Now, interestingly enough, the only evidence in all of church history, and uh, because I was interested in this whole issue, I took a course called The History of Pentecostalism, which was probably one of my best courses in seminary. I loved it. All throughout church history, from the early church until the late 1800s, there are only a couple of incidences of tongues, and every time they are in heretical sex. Not in orthodox churches, but heretical sex. Paul said tongues would simply fade away, and they did. They didn't. You say, well, why are they here today? 
They're here today because of some errant theology, some errant theology that came about in the late 1800s and early 1900s in Topeka, Kansas, made its way from Topeka, Kansas to Houston, Texas, made its way from Houston, Texas to Los Angeles, California. And there's so much more to it than I can express. But the renewal of the tongues movement came out of, first of all, wrong theology, a wrong connection with speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Spirit. Number two, it came out of emotionally sleep-deprived groups. There's a Bible school where they had 24-hour prayer for the students. What do you think happens when you've been awake for all those hours? By the way, sadly, to me, there are prayer movements today that do that same thing, that people elevate wrongly, I believe. But in the late 1800s, these emotional, sleep-deprived groups praying for hours, days at a time came up with this errant theology. Last but not least, the third thing, and I'm really summarizing here, is that the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement came about, was sparked in 1906 in Azusa Street, on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, by a false prophecy. What do I mean by that? One of the charismatic, and by that I don't mean the spiritual gift, I mean a person with a great personality, was holding meetings in Los Angeles, California. And he drew quite a, quite a crowd, and he made a prediction that vast destruction will come to this city. Now where is he at? Los Angeles. Where did he predict vast destruction would come? Don't be afraid. It's easy. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Well, within days of him making that prediction, guess what happened? The great earthquake of San Francisco. You know what he said? My prediction is fulfilled. What do you call that when a prediction isn't really fulfilled? A false prophecy. A false prophecy. He claimed that it was fulfilled in the destruction of San Francisco. Now, I looked it up one time because I was curious, but San Francisco is 300 miles from Los Angeles. Out of that came the Pentecostal movement and later the charismatic movement that we see today. Should I seek to speak in tongues? You can be baptized with the Spirit and not speak in tongues. The distribution of spiritual gifts is limited. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says tongues will fade away. They did. Number four, there are more important gifts than tongues. As I mentioned to you, the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at around verse 28, gives a descending order of spiritual gifts. Tongues is at the bottom of the list. 
one of the last of the gifts. It's one of the least important gifts. Fifthly, should I seek to speak in tongues? Ryrie says this, Christ-likeness does not depend on speaking in tongues. If you would like to be like Christ, and that should be the goal for every one of us, Christ-likeness, if you should want to be like Christ, Christ-likeness does not depend on speaking in tongues. Let me give you a couple of reasons. We mentioned a while ago that Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is Christ's likeness, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. You notice tongues isn't in that list. Tongues isn't that list. If you want to be Christ-like, then you allow the Spirit to build the character in your life of Jesus Christ, and it does not include speaking in tongues or working miracles. Jesus, by the way, never spoke in tongues. So if you want to be Christ-like, you don't have to speak in tongues. Jesus didn't speak in tongues. Now, please, I was reading in the News Herald when we had a paper, years ago now, 10, 15 years ago, and some charismatic believer was waxing eloquent in the letter to the editor's paper uh, pages and said this, you should seek to speak in tongues because Jesus spoke in tongues from the cross. My hackles go up. Jesus didn't speak in tongues from the cross. He spoke in what? Aramaic, because that was the language he spoke every day. That was the language of the common Jew of that day. Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lama thabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is not speaking in tongues. It's Aramaic. Jesus, to our knowledge, never spoke in tongues. Lastly, Ryrie says this, if you want a deeper walk with the Lord, is fostered by increasingly greater knowledge of the Lord that comes only through deeper understanding of His Word. Should we seek to speak in tongues? No. No, you can be spiritual, you can be filled with the Spirit, you can be Christ-like and never speak a word in tongues. Well, amazed and perplexed, verse 12, they ask one another, what does this mean? And as in the case when people don't understand things, they do what? They mock it or make fun of it. And that's what they did here in verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, i just leave you with this thought. I wish I could develop it, but I can't. And the thought is this. One of the commentators said this, and I thought it was said well. The miraculous is not self-authenticating, nor does it inevitably and uniformly convince. We think that if somebody could see a miracle, they would believe. If we could do something spectacular, they would believe. 
And yet here, these people have seen the most spectacular of things. And they said, ha ha, they're drunk. I just leave this with you. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not do great wonders in your name? And you remember what Jesus said, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Miracles are not self-authenticating. Luke chapter 16, verses 22 to 31, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man begs that Lazarus can just cool his tongue. And Abraham says, I'm sorry, there's a chasm. He can't go past it, and you can't come to our side. You had your choice when you were living to believe, to put your faith. And the guy said, the rich man said, well, then at least send somebody to talk to my brothers so they don't come to this place. And Jesus said, they have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? The scripture, the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. Yes, but if somebody rises from the dead, they'll believe them. No, because Jesus was crucified, buried, risen from the dead, and most of them did not believe him. Miracles are not self-authenticating. Oh, there's more, but we got to stop. Man, we'll never get to eat chicken and catfish. I, I apologize. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, please, for uh, the coming of your Spirit and the power of your Spirit that enables us to share our witness with those around us in an effective way. Thank you for your word. Help us to seek Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.